You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Ralph St. Mary. I am woman. Hear me roar. Also back with us this week is Mr. Jim Tushinsky. Ciao, Julietta. This week we are delving into Fellini territory again. We're discussing Juliet of the Spirits. This 1965 film was Fellini's first foray into the wonderful world of color film. The film is something as a flip side of one of Fellini's most popular films, Eight and a Half. It starts Fellini's wife, Julietta Messina, as the titular character, a woman who's at her wit's ends when she finds that her husband is cheating on her. This film is something of a journey of self-discovery as Juliet works to unburden herself of her past. So, Jim, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Juliet of the Spirits, and what did you think? I saw it when I was a freshman in college in my intro to film class. It was the Fellini that they showed. And I guess I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I think I liked it um, because it was Fellini, so I was expected to like all of Fellini. Um, and I just I just remember it being so bizarre uh, that I wasn't really sure what was going on. Uh, and But I was a freshman. What do I know? How about you, Rob? I, of course, you know, worked at that wonderful uh, cult video store, which is no longer around, that I often talk about. And what was great was going in there, you had whole shelves of directors, and I think that Juliet of the Spirits was one of those that I worked my way through as I was working through all the Fellini films that they happen to have. And um, I enjoyed it when I saw it, but it didn't um, it didn't register as heavy with me as other films that he'd done. I enjoy Eight and a Half and La Strada probably more out of uh, his work. It was sort of uh, re-watching it again, or completely for the first time, uh, when you decided that you wanted to do this for the show, and uh, had a chance to watch it again just a month or two ago. I saw this one, I was probably like mid-20s. Uh, I think I might have talked about this a little bit on our WR episode. There was a film series going on in Windsor years and years ago. There was a guy named Otto who had programmed films over there, and this was one of those movies that was there. Uh, he definitely had a penchant for um, 
more surrealistic fare. So WR, this one, uh, one plus one sympathy for the devil, a couple other films that I saw over there for the first time. When I saw Juliet of the spirits, I was absolutely blown away. I thought it was just wonderful. I had never seen anything like it. The colors, the beautiful people, the just absolutely wonderful mise-en-scene, everything. Going back to it again recently, though, I wasn't as impressed as I was when I was mid-20s. So um, I'm hoping that I can kind of learn to like this movie a little bit more as we discuss it. (laughs) I'm feeling like I did us all a disservice this week. No, no, not at all. There's a lot to like about Juliet of the Spirits. There really is. It's, It's just, I think it's in some ways more interesting to look at why Fellini did some of the things he did and how the film came about. The background to it is, to me, more interesting than the film in many ways, um, looking at it now. But I agree. When I was young, it was like, oh, my God. Oh, this movie. It's so crazy. When I saw this for the first time, I was like, oh, man, this is totally where David Lynch gets his stuff from. I mean, this is crazy. You got this girl (laughs) named Laura, and she's dead, and there's all this one woman who's playing all these multiple parts. This is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. And watching it again recently, I was like, eh, yeah, okay. But yeah, I agree that the gender politics is what I find most interesting, both in what is being said and done on screen versus what is not being dead, done and said. And that whole idea of comparing it to Eight and a Half and how Master Antonio kind of walks through life in that one versus what kind of tortures Juliet is uh, put through, definitely an interesting contrast for me. And these movies were made not necessarily back to back, but eight and a half was the previous film to Juliet. Well, the thing that's interesting to me, and when you talk about the gender politics and all that stuff, that's the thing that holds up. I mean, it looks beautiful. It's directed well. The you know Nina Rota, all that. It's it's great. You know, and that's fine. Uh, but to me, the fact that this is 1965, and they're having discussions about. You know, husbands cheating on wives and the role of women and how they are not fulfilled and all that. It just seemed kind of like ahead of its time. It seems like something that wouldn't get really big, at least I would say in English language film, maybe another, I don't know, 10 years or so. I mean, sometime in the 70s you would have that kind of discussion. It just didn't seem like they were having that in the mid-60s. Well, I don't know that the gender politics are paint a particularly positive view of... Julietta, it's I don't know. I'm I'm really conflicted about this because I think she comes off as uh, a a bit of a frump, and it's sort of how Fellini sees women and particularly his wife, uh, and, and and the idea that you know if only she could be more like Susie the neighbor, uh, she would you know she'd be happier and the the husband would be happier. It's I don't know, kind of creepy to me. I don't disagree. No, I, I don't disagree with it either, but there are aspects in there that I found interesting in terms of someone trying to come to terms with their past and sort of feeling oh, yeah. that they've been, you know, basically, um, uh, you know, BF Skinnered into this kind of, you know, I've been behaviorally trained into this position and I'm not happy about it. And when I go back and I look at my youth, I can see the false steps and the places that weren't necessarily good for me. 
So let's get into the plot a little bit. The movie starts, it's interesting that the film starts very similarly to Eight and a Half, that we don't necessarily see our protagonist's face for the first few minutes. We get a lot of shots of Juliet from behind. She's trying on different wigs. She has two maids that are kind of helping her out, and she's getting ready for her big anniversary dinner with her husband. Finally, the husband comes home, the lights come up, we see Juliet Messina, who I think is just absolutely adorable. She's got that big cherubic face, just so super cute. And she is immediately disappointed upon, you know, kind of having the lights brought up and there's the husband and there's this whole cavalcade of people that he's brought with them. And this group we see again and again throughout the film. And we've talked a little bit about this whole idea of, um, you know, finding yourself and some of the, the movements that people have gone through, especially in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, as far as, you know, looking within oneself and using, you know, Est and Scientology and all these different kind of stuff. And, and these are those type of people. They come in and they immediately want to do like a seance and, you know, there's palmistry and all this kind of stuff going on. And that's our introduction to Juliet and her spirits is this seance that we have with some of these, I don't know, they all seem super flighty and just the kind of people I would not want to have in my house, especially when I've just prepared and, and myself and the house for a big anniversary dinner with my husband. Yeah, um, they do seem kind of childish in a way, um, but it's important that this first seance uh, sort of opens the door for the spirits to come in for the rest of the the film, and it it, it sort of echoes back to La Dolce Vita, where there's a, a similar séance and uh, people showing up at parties. And so there's a lot of of Fellini's past films kind of crammed into this uh, allegedly female version of Eight and a Half. <laughs> And yeah, this is where she's introduced to at least two spirits, but really Olaf is just there for a little bit. And then the spirit Iris or Iris is the one who kind of is with her throughout the entire rest of the film. And, you know, we hear this voice talking to her and telling her, you know, what she needs to do. Most of it is to uh, listen to her neighbor, Susie. And we get this introduction to Susie shortly thereafter. And Susie, is the same woman who's playing Susie also plays another role in the film. And she's also this voice of, of Iris that is telling, you know, um, Juliet to, to listen to her and to listen to Susie and to um, kind of do what Susie does. And Susie is definitely a very, very free spirit. She is completely the opposite of what, uh, Juliet is. She is completely the id compared to Juliet's. I would say she's more of the super ego. And it's really kind of this film to me is trying to get Juliet out of that super ego and more into the ego, trying to get her more into that middle ground. And I'm not sure how far the pendulum swings or anything, but yeah, to Rob's point, there's a lot of baggage that she has that she kind of starts to unburden herself from with this point and with Iris as kind of her spirit guide. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good summary. Um, Thanks. I'm just, you know, the, I'm, hmm. I, I, I see bits of Fellini's other films in here, but I also see in a strange way, bits of other filmmakers. And what I mean by that is some of the domestic stuff reminded me of the way Godard was, framing and shooting contempt 
sort of these, you know, locked off camera and someone's in the other room and they get their back to someone else and they walk in and out of the frame. I was also getting with this sort of travel through the past kind of thing of maybe like Bergman's Wild Strawberries or something and trying to reconcile all these past things. And like I said, I, I really found it interesting in terms of when she gets into the stuff about her youth and how she was in this play as a kid and then there's I, th- I think it's her grandfather or something always really appreciated her but it was like this outrage in the village related to um her characterization or she's playing like this martyred saint well it's just yeah. the grandfather who's upset um and he's the same one that runs off with the uh, the ballerina or circus performer and sort of um abandons Juliet uh and also abandons his whole family by running off with by the circus actress who's also played by the same actress that is Susie and Iris. So it, her grandfather keeps kind of showing up at strange times um, as sort of the look back on her past. And she doesn't really understand why her grandfather did what he did. I think, you know, it's we see this as being fairly traumatic when he interrupts the play um, that this, according to the film, seems to be like this something that sort of unlocks something for her her because once she's able to take that little girl off of the grill um, when she goes through the door the little door um, then she's suddenly free so it's i mean i'm wondering what you guys think about this the grandfather because he seems a pretty important symbol going on here it's interesting to me that it's her grandfather and not her father you know the the father seems to be missing throughout the film yeah i don't actually remember seeing him at all the other thing about the grandfather that I liked was that when he leaves with uh, Fanny, the circus performer, played by Sandra Milo as well, he's in this airplane, and it's this whole thing about his airplane cannot land. And it's not until really Juliet kind of comes to uh, terms with everything that his airplane is able to land. So he is literally hanging above her throughout the entire film, like waiting, you know, waiting for this moment where she can come to grips with this past event for him to be able to land this plane. And what is that past event? Is it that she finally, by the end, understands that her grandfather ran away for this great love that she's not able to to understand sort of a a sensual obsession that that she just can't get because she's the good married wife and you know a good catholic is is that what it is because i'm still i'm not quite sure i'm not entirely sure myself but it definitely seems that religion plays a part in it because i mean the the villains of the piece, even more than her husband, I would say, are these nuns, these faceless nuns that we have running around throughout the film. And they seem like, I mean, they, they almost remind me of like uh, goblins or something. They reminded me, you were talking, Rob, about other films that this was reminiscent to you. Um, this one reminded me, the nuns reminded me a lot of Shuji Teriyama's uh, pastoral to die in the country those one-eyed uh old crones that kind of haunted his past and everything that they just kind of had that same sameness about them every single one of them seemed to be cut from that same cookie cutter and this way we have these faceless nuns that are all shrouded and going around in the background and those nuns were actually played by young boys that um fellini found because he said they moved more like nuns than than women did. Huh. That's why you never see the faces or anything. And it's weird because I found out about that and then I looked at their hands instead of like I was watching the scenes like oh yeah, 
man hands, you can tell. Um, but yeah, he he felt that uh, these young boys moved much more nun-like. And it is an, it's an amazing image. It's probably one of my favorites from the movie. Going back to the grandfather thing, it didn't seem that odd to me that the father wasn't around. And the, the reason why I say this, and this may be speaking out of no real experience to this kind of idea, it's always been my impression that old world families always have extended relatives around, grandmother, grandfather, aunts, uncles. And a lot of times the father may be busy working or traveling or off somewhere trying to take care of the family, but he's not there. And I also, for myself in my own life, know that I seem to have had a very good connection with my grandparents and felt closer to them at times than my own parents. So that whole thing really didn't uh, really didn't leap out at me as all that weird. I almost wonder if the father was missing, if there was something to do with the war, because at one point these, um, I mean, they look kind of Nazi-ish, these characters show up um, when her whole world is kind of cracking apart, and they're just like completely introduced out of left field and i'm like i'm not really sure why these guys are here like they're even on the poster image that i found that i posted up on the facebook invite but they're barely in the movie and i was like i wonder if that has something to do with this but like there's a a moment in the film probably about 10 minutes before the end where just reality completely breaks apart and that's when these guys kind of show up and it's like okay i'm really not sure what these guys are doing here but you know juliet messina she would have been you know like in her 20s when the war was going on and stuff so i'm not really sure um if that's what was happening or not but it just it's another possibility to me i mean we we're not supposed to understand all of the images in felino i don't think it's you know all of these all came from his dreams he wrote he had this enormous dream journal and a lot of this stuff just came out of his dreams and i i'm fine with not knowing what all that stuff meant those soldiers are one of the weirdest images in the film though they do it they just sort of come they look almost like zombie nazis um they're kind of very dead death head looking but yeah i mean i i actually love that flow of strange images and everything and when it when she breaks down and when reality breaks down for her, that's probably my favorite part of the film. That's definitely my favorite part of the film. Yeah, that that's the moment I remember from all those years ago. I thought the whole movie was that. So when it, when it took like an hour or so before stuff started showing up, I was just like, okay, now I remember. But the, the, the first hour of the film, I was just like, when does shit get crazy? This is taking way too long. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember everybody going, ciao, Julieta. You know, that's that's... Even for when I was a kid, that's stuck in my head. And now I'm always, I, I seriously walk around going, Ciao, Julieta. And especially after watching the movie, it's just this weird lilting. It happens over and over again. They keep saying Julieta whenever they're referring to her. You know, to me, it just seems strange that the, her name is always being used as if they're trying to just cram it down her throat that you are Julieta. And this is, you know, you have to figure out who you are. You're Julieta, but what else are you? One of the interesting parts of the film is she's kind of, like I said, she's going on this spiritual journey and she's trying different things. You know, she's trying to emulate Susie, but it doesn't necessarily go that well. She goes and sees this. um, This is one of the strangest moments to me. She goes with her friend who has this absolutely bizarre hairdo, goes to see this uh, 
I guess, psychic medium kind of person. Is that, is it a man or is it a woman, this psychic that she's going to see? It's supposed to be uh, an androgynous figure, sort of like in uh, Satyricon with the hermaphrodite um, oracle that they kidnap. Uh, but it's played by a famous lesbian actress dancer from like the 20s, I think. And he originally wanted Mae West to play that part. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that is very <laughs> funny. But yeah, it's supposed to be a male female, you know, and I think they even say that, that, you know, it's sort of a combination of male female. Because it feels very much like um, what they're saying is very. Um, uh, male centric. It's like this whole idea of like treat your husband like a god, and I'm like I can understand that coming from a man more than I can from a woman, and even from this androgynous character, I don't necessarily buy it as much because it's just like oh you really you need to treat your husband like a god, and I'm just like why would you treat your husband like a god when he's treating you like shit? And he is one of the people that's treating Juliet bad to me and also her family. I mean she's got the two sisters and the mother and all three of them don't necessarily respect Juliet as much as they should. And I find it very interesting that Juliet Messina is not the tallest person in the world. And Fellini is constantly surrounding her with actors and actresses that are at least a head taller than her, including her, the two sisters and the mother. She is just completely dwarfed by them, which to me makes her feel even more, you know, diminished and more like a little girl, uh, you know, because they are constantly talking down to her figuratively and literally in this film. My favorite story about that is her husband invites over this Spanish, very handsome Spanish man who's very tall and uh, Julieta kind of develops a bit of a crush on him. There's one scene where she, she's dancing with him, but before that she turns and sort of, I think her husband frightens her or something. And she turns and goes into this guy's arms. And originally when they were filming it, the guy's very tall and Juliet is very short. And she said something to Fellini. She goes, you know, I'm, I, I'm reaching at, you know, I'm hardly reaching his, collarbone i mean isn't this kind of strange and fellini thought for a minute he goes yes it is let's get some boxes so they got some boxes and instead of putting Juliette on the boxes they put the tall guy on the boxes so she was even shorter <laughs> and when you look at it she's actually looking right at the guy's buttons um so i think it was definitely i think you're right it's, it was very much a uh, all through the movie she's made to feel to look very small very isolated uh sometimes she'll be against a wall and there's nothing but a big expanse behind her. Rob, you got anything to add? No, I was just going to add that on the um, possibility of Mae West, I was having um, my Breckenridge flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got some real good loving and I've got some in stock. When I get through throwing it on, you got to come back for more. Girls and things will come by the dozen. That ain't nothing but much so loving. Good-looking thing, loving. Light your candle, cause baby, I'm sure how to handle this I am. And there's that film, uh, Dinah East, that was kind of a parody of Mae West, where it was a uh, famous actress who dies and... After she dies, they find out that she was uh, had a penis and had been uh, portraying a woman all of her life. So that was uh, it was a rumor that kind of uh, followed Mae West around. So I think the idea of her playing this hermaphroditic character would have been uh, very interesting. And I'm sure she 
I know she hated the rumor of her being a hermaphrodite. So, um, you know, that, that would have been, uh, pretty good i never heard that one before although i have heard of a more modern actress to our era that supposedly uh had a similar thing oh daryl hannah no jamie lee curtis is the one that is always being talked about and it's such a lie it's such a lie i don't know whenever i see daryl hannah i'm just like i bet you daryl was her name before she had the operation nowadays yeah i I do think that a little more oops that's terrible (laughs) <laughs> um, but you know, I want to I, I want to talk about this the the sexual politics going on here in this movie because something really bothers me, and that is the fact that I don't think you know. Can we talk about the end now and whether or not anything actually is better for her, or do we want to wait and talk about that? We can talk about the end right now. We've been jumping around. It's like a Fellini movie. Our discussion. We're jumping all around. <laughs> it is. It's all over. <laughs> our, I'm, I'm about welcome, to put on my nun Fellini. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna have myself raised over the city and carried off by a, a helicopter or something. You know, there you go. In order to get in the spirit. Perfect. So at the end of the movie, um, she banishes her spirits by having this r- revelation um, that from a childhood experience, the the business with her grandfather at the at the play, and taking her, you know, making her not be the martyr, uh, which upset her greatly. But at the end, she, you know, all the spirits are banished. She makes them go away, and she walks out of the house and just walks off into the woods. And you, you kind of think, well, wow, she's finally, you know, she's learned that her husband has cheated on her. She's not going to take this anymore. She's her own woman now, and she's going off, in, and uh, she's going to be strong, and, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. And I don't think that's really what, I think that's maybe what Fellini might have thought, but I don't get that impression. I she seems awfully sad at the end. Like, what is she going to do now? Um, she she isn't interested in becoming a sensual person like Susie. She's terrified of that. She runs away from it. She um, she doesn't know anything except being the good wife. Um, and she's not a mother, although she plays surrogate mother to her nieces. So the ending, she sort of just walks away, and she's left with nothing. She has no marriage no husband anymore um she's sort of lost she's lost the spirits they're gone um what does she have left it's a very sad ending for me i think well i think it can be if it's read that way but i also think that it could be you know for a film that lacks reality as fellini wants to take us all over the place i think that's a much more realistic understanding of rebuilding if she's leaving all of this stuff behind the past, the spirits, the husband, all that stuff. It's not simple. It's not an easy plug-and-play plan that I can now go to and everything's going to be okay. No, I don't know what the future's going to be. It is uncertain because from ever since I was knee-high, I was raised to be a certain way and to do a certain thing. So therefore, everything else is the wilderness. Everything else is, you know, this fear of the unknown, I guess. Yeah, that other really telling scene for me is when she's trying to have an affair. Um, Susie kind of sets her up. What what'd she say with her godson or something? Uh, yeah, godson. Who really, to me, I know it's not the same actor, but he really reminded me, um, you know, we spoke about Satyricon a few months ago. He really reminded me of Hiram Keller uh, quite a bit. Those kind of pointed eyebrows and everything. I don't even know if the guy has very many uh, lines at all. I mean, he's just pretty much there to look pretty. And he does a good job of that. And he is 
supposed to be seducing Julieta, and she has this vision of a friend uh, of hers from childhood who committed suicide, and she just freaks the fuck out and runs away. So she never really gets fulfilled that way. Like you're saying, she's not going to be this sensuous person. I don't know if after she kind of banishes her demons, if maybe she can start to embrace that. But I totally agree that it feels like there's this huge double standard going on in this film. And I know that it was, you know, the vision of her friend that kept her from having this affair. To me, that's kind of like the good Catholic upbringing that is keeping her from having this affair. But it's absolutely fine for the husband to have this affair. And, you know, I don't even know if she ever necessarily meets the woman that he's been stepping out on uh, her with. Uh, I think she shows up in the basket towards the end, but I'm not a hundred percent. She visits the house, talks to the woman on the telephone, but there's not this big confrontation and it just seems to end with a whimper rather than necessarily a bang. Even though we do have that, that scene of all these things coming together and just the world completely disintegrating for her. But you're right. Once she banishes the spirits, she's kind of her own person. You know, she stood up to me. The person that she stands up to the most is her mother by opening that door and freeing that little girl from that bed. She, or you know, the, the flaming um, rack or whatever, that's the thing that she, you know, finally does is to me, she tells her mother to shut up and she defies her mother. I didn't even necessarily see her mother as being that looming of a figure in the film until that moment. And it was just like, okay, this is kind of strange for me, but yeah, it does seem to me that she, she definitely lives in this world of double standards where it's absolutely fine for the husband to go out and to do this, but she can't necessarily free herself enough. And I don't know if she's ever going to be able to, be fulfilled after this because it does feel like it ends on this very sad note. I think for Fellini, embracing that sensual side is what would make her better. For for the husband, it'd be great because then she could be just like Susie. But I don't get the feeling that with Julieta that that is the answer for her. I think she's rejected all that. Um, and I don't know, in a weird way now, I'm looking at at this film, when I'm older, it reminds me of when I was a lot younger and feeling like, oh my God, you know, pressured into um, having as much sex as possible and sex was the most important thing in life and la la la. And then you kind of get older and you go, well, wait a minute, it doesn't have to, it doesn't always have to be about that. You can find yourself without having to indulge in every sensual pleasure imaginable. It seems like a very male thing to, to want that for your wife to be more like Susie. And I think Fellini definitely wants Julietta to be more like Susie. He thinks she'll be happy that way. Not only do I think that he wants Julietta to be more like Susie, but I think he wants Julia Messina to be more like Susie. Oh, I mean, completely. It, yeah. Yeah. It just feels like this was something that Fellini thought this is going to be perfect for my wife and she's going to get in there. And she didn't enjoy it. It just feels like when I it, just looking at the looks on Julian Messina's face, it just feels like she's uncomfortable through this entire film. And I don't necessarily think that that's just the character of Julieta coming through on screen as much as it is Julia Messina coming through on screen. It just feels like I don't know. It, it, I feel uncomfortable watching this film now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This has got to be the strangest episode we've ever done. This is like I, I'm 
I'm going to digress again. But this is like the oddest. Um, we, we picked the film, we did the film, and now it's like everybody's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, like, eh, well, I don't know. It's not that. It's, I think, um, I mean, I, there's a lot about the film I like, a lot. But it, I don't think that it completely works. And I think this whole idea that it's the female version of Eight and a Half is Fellini's idea that doesn't really come across. Um, but I think that there is a lot in the film to look at, think about, you know, even the fact that we're kind of debating whether or not Julietta at the end is better off or is her own person now. That's great because we should be, it shouldn't be so cut and dry. Right. Um, I'd, I mean, I don't dislike the film. I question some of its underlying messages. Um, and also, uh, you know, in reading what went on behind the scenes, Fellini thought he was making Julietta's story, but he's making Fellini's story, as he always does. This is very autobiographical for him. And he's putting his wife into situations that he would like to see her in, not necessarily that she feels comfortable in. They fought a lot during the filming. I mean, screaming fights on set. So it was not a happy filming situation for Julietta at all. And I still find the film absolutely gorgeous to look at. I love the Nito Rota score. I think that it is, you know, once I hear it again after all these years, it immediately all comes back and I've been whistling it all week, kind of driving my wife a little bit crazy with that. But it is super gorgeous and I do enjoy it, but it is interesting now to see it again. I think that it might be a little bit of that nostalgia thing that we talked about before where you remember something being a lot better or a lot more enticing, exciting when you're younger. And now when you see it again, all these years later, you've changed and the, the artwork hasn't changed. It's the same movie that I saw all those years ago, but it, uh, I'm definitely seeing it with eyes that are 20 some years older. So it, it has different values for me. You know, it is that idea of, you know, do I want to, to change somebody to be better for me or do I want to see this character succeed on their own and just yeah it definitely is coming at it this isn't necessarily that nostalgia that we were talking about with Hamburger a few weeks ago or with you know The Last Starfighter or some of these other movies that you know we grew up on but there's definitely this idea of when I saw this film the first time it blew me away and so when it came to like oh great we're going to talk to John Baxter this is going to be great I, you know Fellini, I fucking love Julia. The spirits blew me away all those years ago. And then when I go to revisit, I'm just like, oh man, I really thought this was a different movie, but really it's me that's different. Are you starting to come to terms with the fact that you're just an old jaded whore now? Is that it? (laughs) (laughs) Old, jaded, and a whore. Yes. That's what I figured. Yep. So speaking of, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play back an interview that we did with John Baxter about Juliet of the Spirits after these brief but important messages. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Christopher Media, The Weedsman Podcast. 
cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hog wild. In the car accident, you just use a little bit and you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios! Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good party cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday.
Yeah, by the time we get to Juliet of the Spirits, I kind of want to uh, turn to that film for a little bit. He's already done some of his best work, Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita and La Strada and all of this stuff. Do you know, um, how did Juliet of the Spirits kind of come to be? Oh, well, this was very much part of his character, a belief in in in, uh, ex- in extrasensory perception, psychic phenomena. Uh, he, he always believed in that right from his infancy because uh, he, he was uh, his his father came from a village called Gambetola, uh, which is out, outside Rimini. And he spent a lot of time there. Uh, and in fact, in eight and a half, you might remember the scene of of the bath. Where, where he and all the kids are in the bath and they have the, the magic word asa, nisi, masa, uh, and so on. That's all part of his experience as a, as a little boy in, in Gambetola. Uh, so he brought a lot of that already to his work. And on all his films, he used to have a, a kind of resident psychic. Uh, most of the time it was a, a guy who just called himself genius, uh, who was a, a kind of... Um, of uh, well, all-purpose all, all uh, um, soothsayer, um, psychic um, kind of medium, um, and then of course he, he he permanently had relationships with the um, uh, with the uh, what they call the people who do the star signs. Uh, uh, astrologers. Astrologer. Astrologers, yes. The, the, the astrologer on the main uh, Rome paper was a very good friend of his and he would consult him uh, all, all, on every film. So, so this whole thing uh, was already present before uh, he did uh, Julietta of the Spirit. Also, Julietta was a believer as well. She would, she would sometimes stop in the middle of a conversation at a, in a group and say, shh, shh. We are not alone, <laughs> uh, and so uh, the, it, it fitted in very well to to that. But also, of course, uh, being in color, it not, not worked in color really, except for um, uh, Testament of the Doctor Temptation, Doctor Antonia. So, so he was anxious to make a film in color that 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 could get him uh, distribution in the United States. Uh, things like that all all fed into it. Um, but but at, at the base is is the the idea that um, uh, there there is another world. There is a there is a, a world beyond this one, and uh, that uh, the real truths of life are, are there rather than in the daily life. That one it, it is so fantastical, and I know that he you know would delve into that occasionally. But that one really seems to me to be the the beginning of a more fantastic era do you see that as well or am i just crazy uh no no I, I, well I, I probably with the benefit of hindsight I, I i see a lot of fantasy in some of the of the early films you're quite right this is the this is the film that uh, that most most flagrantly um uh, exposes that uh, that aspect of his character. He'd or because he tried and uh, would try to to make a number of of, of films uh, equivalent films. The most famous one is the the Voyage of G. Mass Storner, which was inspired by a, a, a American uh, um, science fiction uh, a novel by Frederick Brown called What What 
it's called What Mad Universe, I think. Um, it, it's it was to be a, an extended um, uh, sort of a dream about a man who dies and what happens to him after death. Uh, with Mastroianni as the main character, but but for various reasons it, it was never made. In fact, uh, Fellini nearly died while he was trying to put it together. He had a collapse, um, so that was that was certainly in his mind. And 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 he, also in Eight and a Half, you know, there was a, a subplot which was cut out. That that um, one of uh, the film that, that was being made was a science fiction film with a, a rocket launch in it. And uh, in fact, if you remember the ending of Eight and a Half, where the where the kids are marching around in this uh, empty sort of area with these gantries in the background, those those gantries were supposed to would have would have been in the finished film, the um, the rocket ship. So uh, the, again, it's one of these things which was a long time coming, but uh, it was it was the fruit of a tree that had been sprouting for some time. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of his collaborators that he had. Um, this one is credited to um, four different screenwriters, uh, but the story credit goes to he and Tullio Pinelli. Did you have a chance to talk to him? I did. I met Pinelli. Yes, uh, he was he's a charming man. Uh, he he married um, oh, what's the name? The French actress uh, who who plays. Uh, Rick's discarded girlfriend in Casablanca. Um, anyway, yes, uh, the, the credit, writing credits on Fellini films have to be taken with a very large pinch of salt. Um, uh, he, he would he would approach people like Tonino Guerra uh, and, and 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 Pinelli uh, and so on uh, and and kind of toss an idea at them and then kick it about uh, and then he would bring in other people to criticise. The work that had been done by the first two, and so on. So, so very, very often they don't really represent uh, any any real sense of um, of uh, responsibility for the film. What he liked to do was, uh, especially with with, uh, with Garen and and Pinelli, uh, was would would and, and sometimes he'd put Pasolini into this as well when he was. Pasolini was his sort of assistant, and they would drive. They would leave Rome, and they would take his big old Mercedes, and they would drive out to 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 uh, Fregene, which is where he uh, he had his uh, seaside house. So it's a long drive, and he was a very bad driver. And they would talk up. They would talk over the story. They would talk over the film uh, and the script, and it would develop in that way. In fact, in eight and a half, the the character. There's a there's a character in it, the screenwriter who who is criticizing the screenplay all the time and and saying what why do you think people would be interested in this boring account of your mental processes? Well, this is very much the role uh, of, of Tonino Guerra. Uh, he was he was the cynic. He was the the guy who kind of picked picked at the stories and 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 looked for looked for holes in them and and for that reason they finally fell out uh, he, he picked a little too too hard so so um, uh, there there is no real consistency it was very uh, very much a team where also another thing Fellini would do he would rewrite on on the the during the production on the set he always had a typewriter and and if he didn't like the way his scene played, he would go and he would uh, he would write something new. Uh, so you know the, the, it, uh, 
the whole idea of authorship with Fellini is, is quite murky. One of his other most famous collaborators is Nino Rota. Can you tell us how he got together with Rota? Uh, well, you should really talk to my wife about this because they they uh, Rota comes a lot into their film quite a bit. They uh, there is a, a, a Rota um, foundation in Bari, well down in the south, uh, where he originally came from, where they celebrate Rota's um, uh, Rota's contribution. R- Rota was it's interesting when you listen to the film the films that that Rota uh, wrote for Fellini, scored for Fellini. You, you think of that sort of, you know, the little tunes played on the clavioline uh, with with, uh, so with uh, clarinet, you know, very, very sparse, amusing, puckish uh, sort of, um, uh, of scores. And then you realise that he also wrote The Leopard, you know, which is the most symphonic of all Visconti's scores uh, and and that, that that he in fact was perfectly able to write lavish you know symphonic scores the thing was that Fellini always had that playful kind of comic book quality about his work if you if you think back to the early films that the music very often uh, is related to um, uh, the sort of music you hear in um, in um, what do you call them uh, review vaudeville houses, you know, like in Roma where you see the old Giavonelli uh, vaudeville house with this uh, pit band and, and and these terrible uh, terrible popular tunes and everything. That was that was um, uh, Fellini's background. He really had no musical interest, no musical knowledge. And in fact, Rota tried to get him interested in opera. And, and failed completely, except right at the very end. He was halfway tempted. but uh, and, and, of course, when he did uh, uh, orchestral re- rehearsal, uh, in a way, you know, he, he's, he's saying, I don't understand anything about music. I just, I'm interested in musicians. Um, so the, the, the playful scores that, that you first come across in, well, I guess, in, in, in Variety Lights, but, but particularly in, in The White Sheet, uh, and then are carried all the way through in, in into uh, um, all the later films. They're all they're all kind of jokey. Uh, actually, one that's interesting to look at is the one he did for Dolce Vita, uh, because um, the, it begins with a with a um, uh, what do you call it a defile a, a fashion show. Uh, these women coming out and and the um, the tune. Um, uh, that uh, the band is playing, I think is it's a it's an old tune of the twenties, something like "Yes, sir, that's my baby," but been rescored. Fellini originally wanted uh, a song you probably never heard of called "Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White," uh, which was very popular at the time, um, and he wanted uh, they would, he couldn't get the rights, so he uh, he got. Uh, this old song and had it rescored, but even then, even when he could have had a, a full orchestral score, he still went for that tiddly 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 kind of tune. So, and, and Rota accommodated him in the same way uh, as Morricone accommodated Leone with uh, Fistful of Dollars, you know, um, and all those. Morricone could have written him a perfectly good orchestral score. Uh, finally, about uh, Juliet of the Spirits, I wanted to um, ask about one of his other most famous collaborators, his wife, Julietta Messina. 
what was their relationship like off screen as well as on? Ah, ah, deep waters. Well, well, they they shared a house on Via Maguta, but not not a bed, not a bedroom. In fact, they basically they did they had two different apartments. Uh, they shared uh, they shared the house, but they they lived quite separately. She had her own social uh, circle. She had her own relationships. Um, she had less and less to do uh, with um, uh, with Fellini as he got older. In fact, people commented on the fact that on the few occasions where uh, they appeared together in public, uh, there was a frosty quality about her. Um, certainly when their careers began, she was a great asset to him. Uh, and uh, with La Strada, of course, you know, she was she was almost unknown. He made her into an international figure. Gelsomina became, uh, uh, you know, people wanted to, to do Gelsomina comic strips. They wanted to animate the character. Uh, um, De Laurentiis wanted him to make a sequel called... called um, uh, Gelsomina on a bicycle, uh, all sorts of things, and and Fellini was jealous. He was he was bitterly jealous of her popularity and did everything to stifle it. And she she resented this bitterly, and that became the motif of uh, their their relationship for years. Um, in fact, it, it it sort of in a way mirrors that of. Um, of uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, where uh, if anybody else tried to work with uh, with Julietta, uh, Fellini would would object. And if she did agree to do another film, he would actually. In fact, she she agreed to be in Brian Forbes' film of the Mad Woman of Chaillot, and uh, Fellini turned up on the set unannounced and sat behind the camera, glaring at her during her scenes. Uh, so he was, he took it really, really badly that she was popular. And so by the time uh, he was firmly established, there was already a rift in that relationship. On top of that, there, there was really no sexual relationship. They did, he did have a child when they were first married and the child died. No one's very clear on whether the, the Fellini was really the father. Fellini suffered from a, a glandular problem which made him, in effect, a kind of hermaphrodite. Um, well, maybe a bit hard, actually. He was sexless, essentially. And when you met him, you had that sense of uh, femininity about him. And he, he I said to Dominic Deluche, you know, I mean, did he actually make advances to you? Because Deluche is gay. And, and he said, well, no, he didn't. And if you are, as you asked, he said, if he'd asked, I probably would have been with him. But he just never asked. Pasolini, of course, was gay. And again, there's no suggestion that there was a, anything physical about their relationship. Uh, I, and uh, the evidence that there was any kind of, of, of heterosexual relationship in his life is very flimsy. Um, so that, that certainly drives a wedge between a married couple of
back. Thanks to Mr. Baxter for joining us again. You can find out more about his book and his work on Fellini and all the other writing that he's done at projection-booth.com. And you can also hear him if you're interested in more on Fellini on our Satyricon episode, and then also the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, where he talks about another guy known for his uh, surreal and absurd cinema and a book that he wrote on Luis Buñuel. So as Mike mentioned at the top of the show, Juliet of the Spirit, some say, is sort of the flip side of Eight and a Half, and I guess we should talk about that a bit. I think for me, Eight and a Half has always been about... Well, obviously, for those who haven't seen Eight and a Half, Eight and a Half is about a filmmaker played by... Marcello Mostriani, who is um, you know well known within Fellini's films, and he plays a filmmaker who's blocked, and it was based on sort of Fellini being blocked and not understanding you know what it is he was trying to do. But ultimately, at the bottom of Eight and a Half, it's really a story about a man and the many women in his life, and seen I think through a series of flashbacks and scenes going back to his youth, and you know everything from this woman he found fascinating at the beach when he was a little boy to his mother, to, you know, his wife and his various lovers that he's had all throughout the years. And it's really more of a story about a man trying to understand his place and how the women in his life affect him more than I think it is about a blocked artist with Juliet of the spirits. For me, I don't necessarily see it as a woman looking back on all the various, you know, men in her life and going, okay, well, maybe. I mean, with the grandfather and the and the husband, but I I, I don't understand uh, to some extent sort of the the ties between the two, Mike. Well, for me, yeah. I mean, the the movies begin very similarly uh, as far as the not showing the protagonist's face, that kind of thing. But there is a. It's definitely. It almost feels like a reverse as far as when the surrealism surrealism is in the film in eight and a half it feels much more surreal up front whereas Juliet of the spirits seems to take its time before it kind of gets into that um that idea but i was mostly um looking at it as far as Julieta is one of these women who is kind of expected to take care of the husband the husband in Juliet of the spirits is he's almost a missing character i mean he's barely in the film you would think that there'd be a lot more stuff with him there but he is constantly going off on different trips and running away and kind of you know symbolizing how happy or unhappy he is with his relationship with his wife he's constantly running off and then you know you don't know if he's actually going on these business trips or if he's going into the arms of this other woman versus in eight and a half it feels like he's there kind of being taken care of by all of these different women. And it just, um, for me, again, that kind of brought up the whole idea of the gender politics as far as, you know, he really, I think the solution for him and his character is that if he could have both a wife and a mistress at the same time, you know, knowing about each other and just living in the same house kind of thing, I think he would be absolutely fine because he wants to have the qualities of these two women and can't really necessarily decide between which is better than the other one. And then also interesting too, to have the, you know, the same, some of the same characters, same actors and actresses uh, going between the films. So no Master Antoni and Julia, the spirits, but you definitely have Sandra Milo, um, as his lover in eight and a half. And then also as Susie slash Edith slash Fanny in, uh, 
uh, Julia the Spirit. So that's why I kind of thought that they'd be good to good companion pieces. Well, they are, and I think, and I know that Fellini thought of it the same way. That he wanted okay, eight and a half was for me. Juliet is going to be for um, for Juliet. But it also brings up the whole idea of the difference between men and women in Italy in a very Catholic country in the 60s. Because it's perfectly, as you said, it's perfectly okay for, for the director in Eight and a Half to have all these women surrounding him and basically be taken care of and be the, the man you know, who gets everything sorted out for him. Women take care of him. They, do, they cook for him. They do everything for him. And then you have Juliet of the Spirits where she's only had her husband and the only other man in her life was her grandfather. I mean, she even says at one point that that um, her husband was her first, her first love. So a good Catholic Italian wife isn't supposed to have had a lot of lovers previously and certainly isn't supposed to be having any lovers now. She's supposed to be taking care of the home. But at the same time, doing that makes her incredibly uh, frumpy and not very interesting and sort of lost. What does Fellini want for Giulietta? I mean... What, did, what does he want for himself? It's weird double standard, I think. If Julietta had had uh, all these male lovers that she could compare to her husband and think back, a la eight and a half, it could have been a really interesting take on it, but she's not. She's, you know, she's the mother of the mother and the whore. Yeah, and the wife in Eight and a Half is, she strikes me as so shrewish. And it's interesting that, you know, it's almost like making a movie about that character, you know, definitely tones down the shrewishness. There isn't that that bit to um, Julietta, though there could be. You know, she has every right to be angry, but she just seems to be kind of floating through the world that rather than necessarily reacting against it. And I see the wife in Eight and a Half as being more uh, reactionary and being unhappy with her lot in life, which makes her not necessarily the person that he wants to be around. You know, why go home to this shrew when I can go out with all these other women? When I, I mean, hell, if I had a choice, I would definitely go with Sandra Milo as well. But um, the, compared to the wife in Eight and a Half versus, uh, I don't know, it would be a really tough choice uh, between Sandra Milo and, and Julieta Messina to me, but... <laughs> That that's my personal preference, but anyway, um, yeah. So it just uh, it, it definitely felt like there is that that whole idea of trying to tell the story, but you're being confined by your own societal limitations and your own gender expectations. And it feels like later on, he's going to be able to break from that a little bit. I mean, Satyricon feels much more evolved to me, but eight and a half feels and Juliet of the spirits feel a little bit restrained when it comes to this idea of how we're going to treat women. And I don't know if he necessarily ever gets over that kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's more uh, male on male kind of stuff when, when it comes to Satyricon women in there, they're there, but it's not like they're necessarily a central figure. So I don't know if he ever necessarily gets over what he's doing in these films. I don't think he does. I mean, if you see a later film like city of women where Marcello Mastriani is a professor who finds himself suddenly stuck at a feminist convention for several days, it is a very difficult film for me to watch because I just want to, I want to slap every single man in that movie. They're just, it's so wrong in so many ways. 
And that's just the way Fellini is. He's, you know, he's a typical chauvinist male with all of his issues and problems floating around. And that's what made him a great filmmaker in some ways is because he's so flawed um, and he's got such demons in him. And those demons come out in film. I like Juliet of the Spirits a lot. I can't watch City of Women ever again. Um, so I think that he at least is somewhat sympathetic to Julieta in this film and doesn't treat her quite as horribly um, as in later films when the women just are pieces of paper held up as characters. So what do you think, Rob? Do you think we're taking this all way too seriously? Where are the clowns? <laughs> That's all I'm asking. So, see, that was a little Fellini reference there. No, I... Like I no, I I think it is like like I said to me starting off uh, the the top of this segment. Uh, the, there is some definite difference between the two. Personally, I I'll watch eight and a half, you know, over and over again uh, before I watch Julia the Spirits. And maybe it's just because I'm a dude, and I can relate more to <laughs> Mostriani's character. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that's what it is. Because um, I'm the same way. I could watch eight and a half a hundred times, and Juliet of the Spirits is good every fifteen years or so. I think. I guess some people call them missteps or, you know, choices or whatever. Um, you know, it's a fifty-year-old film, and we're still talking about it. So I guess it's done its job as art. It's still provoking debate. I mean, with us. Oh yeah. I mean, I. You know, it's still it's. Hey, it's in the Criterion Collection. So how bad can it be, right? Um, and I do like hey, a wait, lot about wait. it. What? They put Armageddon and The Rock in the Criterion Collection. Hey, we don't, don't forget. Yeah, but that was that was a long time ago. That we don't <laughs> think about that anymore. We um, we we don't we do not absolve sins. We just we look at the record. That's all we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's true. I mean, and this film was not a success in Italy. In fact, I mean, he went into a deep depression after this because critics didn't like it all that much. And I think it's it's gained a reputation over the years for being better and better and better because it was in the U.S. it wasn't dismissed quite as much, but in Italy it was completely dismissed as eh, no big deal, um, and it lost money. So um, it's you know we we always think we think of people like Fellini as being these great artists who you know any film they made was greeted with love and respect. In fact, he, most of his films did very poorly in Italy. It's kind of strange. Kind of reminds me of that quote that Herzog used to say about why his films didn't do well in Germany. And he said, you know, Germans hate their own poets. So maybe it's one of those kind of deals where it's just the Italians are like, eh. You know, I mean, we often hear the same thing with, you know, we love Kurosawa in the West, but he wasn't all that loved, I guess, in Japan. He was respected, but it wasn't, people didn't go crazy over him like we do here. Yeah, like Jerry Lewis in France. Hey, now. <laughs> all right i hope we you know didn't i just don't want people to think that they shouldn't watch this movie by listening to our conversation because there is a lot to like about juliet of the spirits um it just to me feels like a little a little too um chauvinist for my taste but um but there's a lot to like well, yeah, I mean, it's that whole thing that Rob always says, you know, a good uh, a good Federico Fellini film is better than a, uh, what, a bad Federico Fellini film is better than a good Michael Bay film any day. Which which is a line I stole from a friend of mine referencing Argento. So Argento better than Michael Bay? Yeah, he said even oh. a bad Dario Argento film is better than a good Michael Bay film. There's There's not many films that are worse than a good Michael Bay film. Uh, it's hard to imagine. 
We're still waiting, you know, 20, 30 years from now, as we talked about in one of our previous episodes, to talk about the political implications of the Transformers series and yeah. really get into um, all the stuff that's going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes with that. Because, I mean, that's that's some heavy cinema there, boys and girls. Yeah, we've been working on our um, our interview of Shia LaBeouf, but he says he's not famous anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did do the interview, but it's all muffled because he had to do it through that paper bag. So it's, you know. And I went to see him in L.A. for that art exhibit, and he just wouldn't answer any of my questions at all. It's because you raped uh, him. Well, he did get, I was going to say, he did get sexually assaulted there, so, allegedly. Allegedly. These are all allegations. <laughs> okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Perfection. A scorched outpost in the middle of nowhere. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close? Maybe that's why Val and Earl decided to leave town. Hey, hold up. That's Edgar Deans. They just picked the wrong day to do it. Jeez. You guys better get the hell out of here. There's a killer on the loose. could be doing it. Is that a snake? I'll give you boys five dollars for this. Twenty. That's how they get you. They're under the ground. What the hell are those things? How could they eat a whole station wagon? But where do they come from? I vote for outer space. No way these are local boys. You see, they're hated right for us. No Richter scale can measure it. They're coming! No scientist can explain it. Bert, they're under the ground! You didn't get penetration even with the elephant gun. Run, run! And no one knows what to call it. Mega worms or suckers or, or suckoids. Now this valley is just one long smorgasbord. Now it's up to Val and Earl to save the world. That's one big mother. Who died and made you Einstein? And they know just what to do. Flip for it. Damn. Kevin Bacon. Fred Ward. Tremors. That's right. We will be back next week with a discussion of Tremors. Our guest co-host next week, Jonathan Melville, is the author of the upcoming book, Seeking Perfection, The Unofficial Guide to Tremors. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Jim Tushinsky. Jim, what have you been up to lately, sir? Well, I've got uh, two projects that are in need of financing badly. Um, My documentary... I Always Said Yes, The Many Lives of Wakefield Pool, which you can find out more about at IAlwaysSaidYes.com. We're trying to get funding to uh, release it on DVD and VOD and Blu-ray and stuff. Uh, Tax-deductible donations are always welcome. And I'm working on getting um, the uh, first film of bizarre auteur Tom Graff um, to be finally digitized and restored it's sitting at the lab awaiting a Kickstarter campaign for me to get going and get that paid for. So lots of cool stuff coming up, um, and hopefully I can find someone who will give me some money. What do you need for w- both of those projects? How much How do much need? do I need? For the uh, Tom Graff film, The Noble Experiment, um, it's going to cost about probably $10,000, uh, all told, to get that film restored along with another short and um, and get it onto uh, DVD and Blu-ray for the donors. And then for, I always said, yes, we've got some licensing to finish up. You know, we got festival licensing for a couple of 
important clips because I couldn't afford the commercial licensing. So got to get the licensing taken care of and then all of the fun stuff, getting it out on uh, VOD and, and uh, DVD, which is not free. So that one's probably about, last time I checked, about $12,000. So it's a lot of money. I think I'll go back to just uh, a pen and paper and not do this filmmaking stuff anymore. It's too expensive. See, but I love I Always Said Yes. I think it's great. And um, I would encourage everyone, as soon as you put up uh, some manner, and if you can share that link with us uh, for folks to give you a couple of bucks to help out, uh, that they do so. Because I think not only is it a, a great and interesting film, but it's also an important document and uh, needs to be uh, treated as such. Because it was one of my favorite uh, documentaries I saw, what was it, in 2013. So not this past year, but the year before. Oh, God, has it been that long? I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the reason I did it, is it's a story that really needs to be out there and for people to hear about and understand. And uh, the life story of this amazing person. So, um, yeah, well, I'll be doing quite a bit more promotion on it, and I'll make sure you guys get links and everything, and you can help me push it. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Jim, for coming on, and thanks to our special guest, John Baxter, and thank you for listening and be sure to go over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find more information links and all the good stuff related to this week's episode and also link over there to iTunes where you can give us a review and you can leave us some stars and then maybe you can go see that uh, crazy psychic and they can tell you what's in your stars as well because maybe that'll make you feel better I don't know love for all that's what that's what the psychic will tell you <laughs> there you go do not take an airplane on the 27th of this month.
pleasure free. Let it, don't you be a fool. Let your pleasure go, go, go. Buonissima. Com'è che si chiama? Sangria. Dicono che toglie ogni sete in chi la beve. Anche quella sete che mai si confessa. La chiamano la bevanda dell'oblio, infatti. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment and rate it 5 stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.